I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. We are in Seattle, Washington. Rainy, dreary Seattle, Washington. We've been here for the last three days at the invitation of Boeing to talk about 737 MAX issues and its return to service, which is uh, forthcoming. We were invited to participate um, in briefings with Boeing and got an opportunity to examine not only what occurred with some of the accident scenarios out of Lion Air and Ethiopia, but we also were able to see what uh, the software changes have been and what the certification process for those software changes are. So we were able to get some high-level briefings through executive presentations all the way up to the CEO of Boeing, Dennis Millenborg, and we talked to engineers. We talked to flight test pilots. We had unfettered access to ask questions. And John and I um, actually asked a lot of questions. Many, many. And I think that from both our perspectives, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, and John and I have done some news media as well, a lot of the things that we've been saying since a year ago, October, right after the Lion Air accident, we were able to validate in, with additional information, those things that we have been saying. We also were able to learn a few new things with regard to processes, uh, software issues regarding the airplane, some of the changes that have been made, and of course, having a discussion about certifying authorities, not only the FAA, but some of the foreign authorities and, and what their possible requirements are. And I think that between you and I, John, there was a, a cast of about 20 plus, 25 of us that had been invited to Boeing to participate in these briefings. And I think you and I were the only ones that really asked any questions. That's true. That's true. And we had some pointy questions for them. And actually, we uh, stumped some pretty knowledgeable people. Yeah, we asked some questions because you and I have had an opportunity to dissect the Lion Air report. We've talked about it in a previous podcast, just addressing the maintenance issues. We intend to now, based on this information that we obtained during our visit with Boeing, now dissect the operations issues. And in a future podcast, you're going to hear about all of those things from an operational standpoint with regard to the pilot's their operation of the aircraft, the systems on that aircraft, the interface between the human and the aircraft, and uh, some of the, the myths that have been portrayed or presented out there by the, the news media. There is so much misinformation. These briefings 
helped reinforce the fact that there is so much misinformation. And so hopefully John and I will be able to clear up some of the misperceptions, the misinformation, and help the flying public really understand the crux of the issue with regard to this thing called MCAS, which seems to be the, the star focus of both of these accidents. You know, Greg, as we were going through the process, we have uh, been reporting on these podcasts and a couple of them very pointedly discussing the, the Lion Air and the Ethiopian accident. And when you do that, you always question yourself. Did we get it right? Did we get the right information? Was our analysis of what we had, was it right? And for me, this, this trip out here, talking to, in particular, the investigators that actually were on the scene at these two accidents and the engineering support that they had, and what those engineers back here had analyzed, it was very reassuring that we haven't put ourselves out on a limb on what we're saying. It's really based on facts. And we've been saying it for a long time. If Every investigation should be fact-based. And we tried to keep our comments to the facts. I felt very good after talking for hours and hours with some of these people that uh, we were right on with what we were saying. Because we have that investigator mentality. We understand the process. We understand how some people can go down and start chasing through rabbit holes, uh, you know, a variety of pet theories and things like that. What we've been trying to do, and I think we've done it pretty well, and that is cut through some of that fat and all the fluff out there that, again, as I've said over and over and over again, the sexy story isn't so sexy because when you look at the facts, conditions, and circumstances, they're relatively benign and boring. It isn't the sexy story of there's collusion or corruption between Boeing and the FAA and that there was some nefarious act on the part of Boeing to try and cover this up and prevent pilots from having all the information. That is simply not true. And it's just false narrative that has taken on a life of its own and put a false impression into the flying public as well as in the industry. And when pilots really understand and what we've learned is that Boeing is bringing in a bunch of line pilots, allowing them to fly the scenarios that I was able to fly with you in the simulator. And we've experienced it for ourselves. Um, there is a lot of, a lot of information that was presented by some prominent quote talking heads who supposedly are heroes and, and, you know, spectacular aviators who supposedly flew these simulator profiles and were overwhelmed by all of these bells and whistles and alerts and everything else. That was simply not true. I flew it. You flew it. We experienced it. And I don't know what profile they flew and what simulator they were in. But what I experienced and what we observed others experience isn't that narrative. And we're going to be talking about all of these things in greater detail in an upcoming episode. And I want to make that clear that it wasn't just us sitting in the simulator being spoon-fed by the people running the simulator, that we had pilots from around the world. Yes. And we got to sit and watch everybody's reaction, pilots from the, from the Far East pilots from the Middle East. Yes. And we sat with them and we went through the simulator rides with them. We observed all the bells and whistles and all the so-called uh, shock and awe yeah. that the pilots have experienced. And uh, we're going to digest it all and, and put our notes together and put some detail to all of this. But I, I would just like to say 
that there's a lot of BS in what we've been seeing in the press. And I think the other thing that was was very poignant for at least me, and I, I'm pretty sure you, because we've had these chats, and that is that as we've dissected the report and we found little things that a lot of people haven't even just overlooked ignored or or never even recognized because they didn't look at it in the same way that you and I did from an investigator standpoint. Simple little things that could be easily overlooked by the casual reader or even those people that think they have a very firm or uh, solid understanding of, of aviation, especially accident investigation, they miss critical details. And when I ask questions about things that I saw in the report and I got the answer back that we didn't know that, that's the kind of thing that those little facts are very, very important in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, and if they're overlooked, then all of a sudden the narrative changes. And unfortunately, it was obvious that the NTSC failed to address this in their report, either by choice or by ignorance. The fact is, is that they didn't do, in my book, a thorough and methodical job of developing not only the facts that are in the report, but there was a substantial amount of factual information that they failed to develop. Their version of the FAA, which is the DGCA, is never discussed in that report. That's a huge issue because they are the regulators that are responsible for the oversight of that carrier, the approver of the, uh, the training programs. And when you look at and the maintenance programs, and when you look at the fact that the report is silent with regard to their involvement, that's a big red flag for me. To that end, we're sitting here at a desk right now, the two of us, and in front on the desk is the Lion Air report. And just looking down at it right now, I can see in just three or four paragraphs the number of notations that I've made in those paragraphs, singling out just two or three words that drive you to ask a question which is not answered in the report. Yep. And now all of a sudden, even with the operations issues, it all goes back to the maintenance issues that we discussed previously because they are so intertwined. And the fact that the, the accident crew didn't have critical information when it came to reviewing what was wrong with that airplane before they took off on the accident flight, that's critical information for, you know, informed decision making by either a crew in this particular regard, or even a single pilot flying an airplane, and we're going to talk about some recent accidents where that may have played a factor, not having sufficient information to make an informed decision. I can tell you that, you know, hanging out and having an office in an FBO on an airport, I watch pilots do walk-arounds and prepare for flights often right outside the window. I'm, oftentimes I'm looking right down into the cockpit and watching people not do a checklist watching them, not reviewing in any kind of meaningful manner the paperwork that goes with the airplane. It's just getting out and, as you say, kick the tires, light the fire, and let's get out of here. Exactly. Exactly. And it happens at all levels. It's not just a general aviation level. We've seen it in the corporate. We've seen it in the charter. And, of course, you and I have been around long enough doing acts investigation. We've seen it in the airline business. And it is one of those things that, yeah, sometimes you may get away with it. But unfortunately, you and I have been out to too many accident sites where they didn't get away with it. And it's common. Failure to follow procedures, both in the maintenance environment and in the cockpit and elsewhere in the, in the aviation system have led to accident after accident after accident. So, and I don't know how you pound it into people's head 
that if they follow the procedures, they lower the risks of themselves. Exactly. I mean, that's why they're there. That's why they've been established. And, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, whether or not there was sufficient information for the pilots to know what the MCAS did and what its purpose was and, and things like that. Because, again, based on what I think you and I both got out of these meetings and, and the briefings, it's obvious that, yes, the information is relevant and pilots should have this information. But was it going to, quote, save the day for these two flight crews, Ethiopian and Lion Air? I have serious doubt, and we're going to talk about that relevance in our future show. Well, from the very beginning, I felt that the uh, runaway trim procedure that's been taught since the 50s would have saved the day on this if it had been used by the flight crew. And it was so obvious flying the simulator, because this airplane still has the old big pie plate trim wheel, unlike the 787 which all you get is a chirp when the trim is, is being engaged. This one has this big pie plate wheel. It's black and white. It's got a white stripe on it. You can't miss it moving. You don't even have to look in the general area to know that it's moving because you either feel it rubbing against your leg or you hear it because it is so loud. Yeah, it's just amazing. But we'll get into all of that in great detail. As we've promised you, we're going to analyze these reports uh, into the minutiae as we demonstrated with the maintenance piece. And we're not through with the maintenance piece on Lion Air. And we're going to hit the operations piece because it's really a mother load of issues in the operations piece. And actually, we picked up a couple of issues flying the simulator that didn't jump out in the report because yep. they overlooked it or downplayed it. Yeah. And, but we'll get to it, and we're going to give you all that raw data and all that information and what it means in plain, simple language. Yep. And I think that is a great segue into this next little topic, and that is we've had two very prominent fatal general aviation accidents over a holiday weekend. Uh, we lost nine members of a, of a single family in a Pilatus PC-12, a single-engine turboprop airplane that was on a flight from South Dakota back to Idaho. And unfortunately, the airplane crashed shortly after takeoff. Nine of the 12 family members on that airplane uh, were killed. And then not but two days later, there was a single-engine Piper Comanche down in San Antonio, Texas, that killed three. And when you start looking at some of the issues with both of those accidents, the Pilatus, of course, <laughs> I had experienced the weather in Colorado because I ended up shoveling two feet of uh, liquid sunshine um, before I left to come out to Seattle. And that same system is the system that moved through South Dakota. And in doing so, these uh, this pilot decided that uh, he was going to load the airplane up and try and take off in weather conditions that really weren't conducive for general aviation flying. And I'm not talking VFR flying. I'm talking IFR flying. And I know that uh, with that in mind, I'll, I've been asked a number of times recently, so what's the board going to be looking at? And uh, and again, based on our experience, John, the board's going to be looking at a variety of things. Of course, the weather's going to be a major factor in this. The weather reports are a little scattered, but when you think about low visibility, half mile or less, snow and ice, that in and of itself is not conducive for any kind of general aviation airplane to be flying. Although the Pilatus is a very, very capable airplane, it, uh, it's not that capable. And it requires very vigilant, very disciplined operational skills by the pilot 
to operate in those kinds of conditions. And, and so, of course, when you look at some of the pictures from an investigator standpoint, it's obvious that, you know, there wasn't a lot of power on the propeller at the time of impact. Now the question is, was that a mechanical problem with the engine? Was it an operational problem with the engine by the pilot? Because flying in snow and ice is a lot different than flying in clear air. Let's take a second and just talk about the propeller. So as an investigator, when you approach a crash scene and you find the propeller, if it's still attached to the engine, great. If it's not, you'll find it out in the area someplace. And one of the clues that we have about what that engine was doing at the time of impact is the damage that we see to the propeller blades. Correct. Are they bent back? What kind of leading edge damage we have? So were they? did they hit the ground at high rotational speed or low rotational speed? So those are, these are the kinds of things that an investigator would look at during the on-scene portion of the investigation. That's why we do it. And I just mentioned where did we find the propeller blades. Well, documentation of the crash debris, if you will, is very, very important yes. to tell you uh, what happened. And people always ask me, how did you find that, you know, a piece that was off in the field someplace? Well, we always do things like find the direction of the airplane was coming from and walk it backwards. Sometimes you walk it back with a team of people spread out in a straight line yeah. and looking at the ground, seeing what's there. Because sometimes the first thing to fall off the airplane is a big clue to the initiating event. Yep. And when you look at it, because, you know, you're looking at a propeller, it's rotating. If it's rotating at high power, it's got high rotational energy. If it starts to break and fragment, it's going to throw pieces well further away than just the ground scar that's very obvious where the airplane crashed. So that's why it's so important for investigators to scour the area and account for those major pieces. That's why if you read reports or hear some of the investigators on TV talk about we've documented the four corners, that is they've walked around the airplane, they've taken their photographs basically on a compass rose various points trying to document all the parts of the airplane from the tail feathers all the way to the nose of the airplane, the propeller, the spinner, and everything in between. We have to account for those pieces because if you are missing an aileron or you're missing a trim tab off of an elevator, one, you got to find out where it is, and two, you got to find out why it separated where it did and where it came to rest because those are those kinds of clues, whether you had a problem in flight or is that an artifact of the accident itself, that is the impact with the ground or structure or obstacle that the airplane may have hit. And one thing that has changed in the investigative business is the use of GPS for location. So it used to be you have to measure these locations out by hand sometimes running a tape measure to find how far from the airplane did you find whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, today, it's a lot easier to just walk around with a handheld GPS and record the coordinates. And you grid the whole crash area for the coordinates. And now you can put a map on the wall or on the computer screen and mark where all the pieces are. And that's another big clue into the sequence of events where things happened and the timelines. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, unfortunately, when you look at the weather conditions in South Dakota, when the pilot took off, that becomes basically the prominent feature or focus for the investigation, the weather conditions. The NTSB couldn't even get in for a day because the weather conditions were so bad. That gives you a clue that if they can't get in, why is this guy trying to take off the day before in those similar conditions? So while that sounds like, well, it's obvious what happened, it isn't. 
that may be just a factor in a whole sequence of events. These guys were on a hunting trip. They had a lot of people on an airplane. In fact, they had more people than there were technically seats for on that airplane. So, of course, weight and balance is going to be an issue. How much fuel did they have on that aircraft? So was the airplane properly balanced? Did it weigh what it needed to weigh? And then, of course, was the performance, the aircraft performance under fully operational conditions of the engine possible? And then, because the airplane only crashed a mile away, there is some speculation. And, of course, looking at pictures, there is some evidence to suggest that the engine may not have been rotating at full power at the time of impact. And, and again, as we talked with the propeller, that's the kind of evidence. So now they're going to have to look at the operation of the engine. There are two things to look at, mechanical malfunction or failure, and then pilot operation. Because when you fly in those conditions, that was a PT-6 that's on the front end of this airplane, there's what's called an inertial separator. So when you're flying in snow and ice, you got to make sure that that inertial separator is active because it filters basically or bypasses snow and ice going into the induction system. And if that's not properly operated, you can have a, an engine flame out or a loss of power. And, and again, you have icing conditions. This airplane is icing capable as far as flying in known icing conditions. But if the icing conditions exceed the capability of the airplane, now you've run into an aerodynamic problem and a weight problem because ice does weigh a lot depending on how much accumulation. And it's not clear from what has been said so far if the airplane was the ice or if it was how soon prior to the departure. Yep. Was the icing critical of peace? And when I first started to read the report, it just shaken my head because I've flown the Pilatus. It's a wonderful airplane, and it's got plenty of power, enough power to get you out of almost every situation. And yet this, this one went down. So there's something else at play with this, and it may very well be the weather, or it may very well be a pilot error, get out of town. Yeah. You know, we often say get, in, get it in itis when there's approach accidents, yep. the airports in stormy weather. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get in. Uh, well, sometimes it's the flip side of it. I'm going to get out. Yep. And uh, maybe that's what they were trying to do because maybe the weather forecast was going to have them locked in there for 24 or more hours and they wanted out of there. And we know that flying turbine aircraft, of course, you know, there's always a potential for icing in the fuel. Whether it's in general aviation, 100 low lead, or in uh, jet A fuel, there's water suspended in that fuel. Always. Th and in jet fuel, we use a liquid called prist so that the, the ice doesn't form in that fuel. That's a critical element when you're operating an airplane like this in these types of weather conditions. So that should be a factor that the investigators will look at to see if the pilot used Prist to make sure that no ice formed in that fuel and things like that. So there are a number of elements other than the obvious, which a lot of people have gone to, which is, oh my gosh, the weather was really bad. That's true. But there could be a number of operational factors and decision-making. What was the need? to leave that day at that time under those conditions. Right. Was it a bad choice by the crew? Yep. And know, by the pilot, single pilot. So was it, a, was it his problem that he wanted out of there? You know, so sometimes you're going to see, and the investigators are going to go back and look at the pilot or pilots and their decision-making and their lifestyle over the last 24, 48, sometimes up to 72 hours. What were they doing? What kind of a... a Sleep cycle did they have? Was there alcohol involved? They'll do the alcohol tests on the, the bodies, but 
were they drinking a lot of alcohol two days before? So even though you may not have a high alcohol content in your blood at time of impact, you may have had a little bit impaired. Your mental capabilities may have not been as sharp as they should have been just before you took off. Or in a situation like this, if you have a low-time pilot, doesn't have a lot of experience, especially in these kinds of weather conditions, they transfer a lot of that confidence that they lack in their own personal skills, abilities, and knowledge. They transfer that into a high-technology airplane. You got an autopilot. You got, you know, a powerful engine out there. You have TAWS so you can see the terrain. You have weather mapping in front of you, and you got a GPS. So all of a sudden now they transfer that confidence into the airplane rather than in themselves and basically hint and hope that, you know what, if I turn that autopilot on as soon as I break ground, we're good to go because the autopilot is going to be able to fly us out of this mess. So there are a lot of factors to be looked at in this investigation. And, and I think that, you know, while we want instant answers, we're not going to have a lot of instant answers. However, I think we'll have a pretty good scenario in a very short period of time with regard to that accident. Segwaying to that, there was another fatal accident down in San Antonio, Texas, involving a single-engine piston airplane, the Piper Comanche, which is near and dear to my heart because I used to own one for 30 years. It's a solid airplane. It is a great airplane. And from the initial information with this particular accident, the pilot was intending to go into one airport, apparently had some sort of power issue, and decided that he was going to divert to a larger airport, San Antonio International Airport, and in the process of diverting, was high, was trying to lose altitude, misjudged his ability to get back to the airport while he was trying to lose altitude, crashed short of the runway, killed three people. While weather may or may not have been a factor in this, you have to look at not only pilot experience and pilot operation, but now what's the reason for that loss of power? And was that pilot induced? Did they run out of gas? Was it a mechanical malfunction or failure? These accidents, we killed 12 people in two accidents. And when you start looking at it and people say, well, you blame the pilot. It's real easy to blame the pilot. Trust me, last thing I want to do is blame a pilot because I'm a pilot. You're a pilot. The last thing we do as investigators is want to go there and, and poke the pilot. But when you start looking at the chain of events, that sequence of events, all the links all the decision-making, all of the operational discipline or lack thereof, a lot of times it focuses right back into the cockpit. You know, all of us are products of our environment. And I'm not talking about whether it's raining or snowing. I'm talking about what we take personally into, from the environment and put it in our head or in our operation every day. So if you're working with an organization that it's go, 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 Never mind the maintenance on the airplane. Never mind any of the operational issues. Just jump in and fly. Right? There's lots of risk with that. And one of the purposes that we want to get out of this podcast is to identify all these issues that have led up to pilots making mistakes. And because it really is a mistake. Mistake in judgment or mis a mistake in some form. Yeah. And put it out there so that it's in the head of all our pilots, both new pilots and, and experienced pilots. And let them pause and think in their preparations to go flying about all the mistakes that other pilots have made in similar equipment or similar conditions so that they don't have to repeat it. It's painful for investigators. And I'll tell you what, I don't know an investigator going that doesn't leave a little piece of himself at every accident. Yep. And when the accidents occur around the holidays, sometimes that leaves a bigger piece. And when you work with kids, that's, you know, we're all parents 
anybody that's been in this business any length of time, you've got kids of your own. And when you look at kids after an accident, it grabs you. Yeah. There's no question it grabs you. Yeah, There is an emotional attachment to these accidents. And you and I have been through probably some of the most emotional. When you look at ValueJet and the 10 unaccompanied minors that were on that airplane, and you start reflecting on those kinds of accidents, you go out to an accident site and you see that a whole, this, this Pilatus accident, there were four generations of a family that were on that airplane. And when you start Trying to wrap your mind around that, it's sad because all of a sudden the question is, why? What was so pressing? What was so pressing that, you know, we had to go that day, that time under those conditions? And, and it's just, it is painful. So from an investigator standpoint, you know, these lessons learned. I mean, we, that's why we do accident investigation. We're trying to understand what happened, why it happened, and of course, how to prevent it. And when you look at how it could have been prevented by better make, you know, better decision making, better pilot skills, better pilot training, better aircraft maintenance, or whatever the case may be, the fact is, is that those lessons keep getting lost a day or two after the accident. Why? Because the, the mindset is, well, that can't happen to me. That won't happen to me. I would never do that. And guess what? You know how many people I've investigated who have said those very words? That's the problem. It can't happen to me. I would never do that. And they're the same folks that unfortunately are involved in a serious event. And that's the frustrating part from being an accident investigator is seeing that, especially when the family says, well, they would never do that. They were the safest pilot. They would pre-flight the airplane twice. Well, great. If they were so safe, then why are they dead? Yeah, why are we here? Yeah, exactly. We could pontificate for hours on on these subjects because we've seen so many accidents and we have been there and it has tried our emotional strings and it is tough sometimes. But, you know, as an investigator, you have to remain objective. You have to draw those lines in the sand. You have to put up those barriers so that you can do your job as an investigator thoroughly and methodically and and not be driven through emotion or biased in any way um, because you feel sorry for, you know, the loss of life or, or whoever's been left behind. And some investigators are very good at doing it. I mean, I had to do it. You had to do it. And you become very callous, but it's for a good reason. And that is to be able to do our job efficiently and effectively. Others, unfortunately, can be biased. And, and that's where when I look at the Lion Air report, I can see a lot of emotion, but I can see a lot of agenda in those report in that report. Without a doubt. And without a doubt. And that's why we are, you know, choosing to, to ferret out the fact from the fiction and, and put basically fact in context. That Lion Air report didn't do that. So with that being said, I think that, you know, for our future podcast, as we've discussed, we are going to get into a lot of these details, especially now that we've had the opportunity to talk to the folks that are responsible for building this airplane, installing that software, testing that software, flying that software, 
And then, of course, based on our own personal experience of being able to fly the scenarios and see for ourselves what the crew or crews in this case, because we had two accidents, what they may or may not have faced in controlling those two aircraft um, before their demise. So, well, I'm looking forward to talking with you again, John, because uh, I think the next few shows are going to be really, really good when it comes to uh to the reports. And I, I would like to ask a favor from everybody that's listening. We've gotten a lot of uh, requests for specific accidents, many of which we already have on the agenda. We're going to go through every one of them. We want to walk you through an investigation, let you know what the investigators are looking at, and then do a 2020 hindsight on some of the uh, accidents and do a deep dive on what they did, what they looked at, and maybe what they didn't look at and overlooked uh, because there are things that get overlooked in every accident investigation because they, they fall outside the chain of events that led to that accident. So there's other issues that are oftentimes discovered. And uh, we want to help educate all of you. But we need your help, too. We need to know what you want us to look at. So we get, I don't know how many, 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 many requests for specific accidents. But we also want to know, do you want us to go into that detail? Do you want us to walk through every single step of the investigation. We're going to do that with, a, with the Indonesian accident. But is that what you want? Do you want that kind of detail or do you want us to go through it more uh, briefly so that we can get more accidents into the reports that we make? And the way to communicate what you want to hear, what you like, what you don't like about the show, we build our show based on our feedback. John and I, when we talk about these things on a very regular basis, what I think is of interest or what he thinks of is of interest may not be of interest to you, but we're looking at, you know, aviation as a whole. We're trying to develop these lessons learned. We're trying to give back to the community. This is the aviation community, whether you fly it, fix it, manage it, or you're just a passenger or an aviation enthusiast. We want you to get something out of this show. And the best way to communicate with us is through um, our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We see all those emails. We see the comments. We definitely appreciate the feedback because that helps us make a better show. And we've been talking about doing some other things with the show. We appreciate the fact that the people that do take the time to send us an email, it's great. So what we're going to start doing is reviewing some of these emails and just randomly picking an email. And if we pick an email, we're going to give you some swag. We, you know, we're going to we're going to get your address. We're going to send you, you know, a T-shirt. We're going to send you the wristbands that we have and a variety of other things because we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. But we also really appreciate the fact that you've taken the time to send us a message to communicate what you like, what you don't like. We feed on that because that's what makes us better and hopefully makes this show better for you. And we read every one of the emails. I, I've spent sometimes more than an hour just going through the emails that we see every single day. And we've run across a few people that we know in the industry where they go, wow, you poked this guy or you, you really poked the FAA or you did this. That's our intent. Why? Because it's all meant to be a wake-up call, a call to action. We are not going to sugarcoat. We are not going to fluff this. And while a lot of people out there may not agree with our interpretation of the facts, conditions, and circumstances, or our position on a particular issue, we like that challenge. Present your side of it. I'll get into a debate. John and I will debate you, and we'll see who wins. 
not for the purpose of I'm the winner and you're the loser, but it's the, <laughs> it's the education that comes out of the debate. That's the good part of all of this, because people are going to learn from that kind of debate. Even I will learn if somebody presents me with something that, well, you know, you're full of it, Greg. This is why. It may be because I didn't see that. And John and I are open to any of those kinds of, of critiques. That's what makes us better. That's what makes the industry better, because it gives us the opportunity to learn from a variety of different perspectives. So we appreciate your feedback and definitely we appreciate your support. Uh, again, we're looking, always looking for sponsors for the show. We're looking for donors to the show. Um, we're going to have uh, some information in the next podcast as to how you can participate in the show as a donor. And, uh, and so we look forward to it. One other thing, Greg, and we may call upon some people that have a different view from us to participate in this show again to get the debate going and get the juices flowing in the thought process so that we can make things better and of course you know you and i have talked about creating a a youtube channel putting the visual to the audio that's always going to be entertaining trust me with john and and myself in the same room you know the boxing gloves are on you just don't see it when he says something and i'm punching him going why are you saying that so but that's what it's all about. So we're looking forward to having a little bit of fun, making it entertaining, but definitely making it informative. So for uh, myself and my colleague and cohort in crime, John Golia, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org. And wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.